Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 622 of the Survival Podcast. Today is Friday. It is March the 11th, 2000, March the 11th, 2011, 3-11-11. Uh, I'm sure somebody will come up with some significance to that date and why we're all going to die by the end of the day, but I don't think it's going to happen. So I'm planning for the future. I hope that's what you're doing too. And today we're going to talk about a really cool way to uh, plan for feeding yourself throughout your future, and that's through the use of aquaponics. I'm bringing on an expert today, uh, Tanya Sawyer from Colorado Aquaponics will be on in just a minute with us to talk to you about everything you can think of with aquaponics, and we're even going to have her back in the future because she's a very... Uh, interesting person with a lot of insight on homesteading in general. So she's hanging on. We'll bring her on in just a second. Before we do that, though, let's take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, um, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, even weeks like this. I'm not even here, man. I doubled up on my workload last week, so you guys should have a show every day this week, including into Monday next week. I uh, want to remind you guys, we have a, a really cool interview coming up. On uh, on Monday, uh, that'll be Jason Akers the, from the Self Sufficient Gardener podcast. So he's going to be on Monday, and then Tuesday I will be back at it for you doing the show we usually do on Monday on Tuesday next week, which is your feedback that you send emails to me. So uh, we'll be back next week uh, live, so to speak, sort of. Uh, anyway, uh, let's let's get on with it. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. That's uh, shelf like something you put stuff on top of, not self like your person, your body. Uh, ShelfReliance.com specializes in innovative food storage products, and they have an exceptional brand of uh, long-term food storage products called Thrive. Uh, Steve Palmer, co-founder of uh, Shelf Reliance, was on yesterday, and uh, he said something interesting. While a lot of manufacturers are having shortages, they have a great big full warehouse, and right now they're shipping all your orders within 48 hours. Also remember, if you are a MSB member and you uh, want to buy from Shelf Reliance, you get 10% off all shelving orders and 5% off all Thrive food products. So that's a huge uh, advantage if you're going to be stocking up with long-term storage food alone. So check out ShelfReliance.com. Next up today, Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. I talk about all this cool stuff you can get through your CSAs, uh, which is community-supported agriculture. You can grow in your own backyard. You can get at your farmer's market. Local seasonal foods. Eating for real food from real people or real food you've created yourself. But some of it might be stuff you've never really heard of before. You're not sure how to prepare it. Check out Chef Keith Snow. He specializes in cooking with the food that's seasonal, uh, that's available at any given time of the year, and, and putting the right combinations of food together, doing it the healthy, organic way, and above all, really enjoying what you're eating. Again, check out HarvestEating.com. You'll find their banner uh, on our website. If nothing else, pick up a copy of Chef Keith's book. Uh, it's an amazing book with an amazing assortment of recipes, many of which can be adapted to use your preps. 
All right, um, next up, want to remind you guys uh, to uh, connect with me on Facebook and uh, Twitter. On Twitter, I am the Survival Pod C. On Facebook, I am facebook.com forward slash survival podcast. Uh, even when I'm away like this week, I do check in with Facebook and Twitter often. Uh, so you want to connect with me socially, that's a great way to do it. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 20 cents an episode. I also want to remind you about Gary Vaynerchuk's five-book challenge. Again, this is more for you guys that have a blog that you're trying to make some money with or trying to build a business or trying to get started in business, you entrepreneurial types. Uh, to help Gary get his new book uh, off the ground heavily, uh, if you buy five copies of the book and email a receipt to Gary, Uh, we are going to be doing a one-hour, again, that is a one-hour private session uh, with something like GoToMeeting or something like that. We haven't decided what the platform will be yet, where you can ask Gary anything you want. You're going to be there only with other people who have done this. It'll be Gary and me, and uh, I've got something special for people that do this as well. Full details, you can find on Monday's show from this week. Uh, that was episode uh, 618. There's a blog post with all the details as well. I'll link to it from today's show notes. And with that, as I said during the introduction segment, uh, we are fortunate today to have with us uh, Tanya Sawyer of Colorado Aquaponics to talk with us about all things aquaponics today and feeding ourselves from our own backyard, both vegetables and protein from one system. Tanya, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Jack. Uh, for the people who are maybe not really familiar with aquaponics as a whole, can you give people kind of an overview of what is aquaponics, you know, in general? What what, what makes it different than, let's say, uh, hydroponics or aquaculture? Sure. Well, that's you've hit on the first two components of what aquaponics is. Uh, so aquaponics, the first part, combines the aquaculture, which is raising fish, and there's a whole variety of fish that you can raise. Uh, we typically raise tilapia just because they're very hardy fish and, and uh, can deal pretty well with a variety of water quality parameters. But you can raise trout and even goldfish if you don't like the taste of fish for any reason. Um, aquaculture has a challenge because it produces an immense ma amount of nitrogen waste, and that waste needs someplace to go. Unfortunately, a lot of times it goes back into waterways, and you know that could be a challenge on the local environment. Hydroponics, as many of us know, uh, is used as soilless media to grow a variety of different plants in. A lot of people use it to grow food, but other things as well. The challenge with hydroponics is you have to constantly be inputting uh, chemical-based or uh, organic, some people use organic-based, nutrient solutions that cost money. You have to continuously resupply them and clean them out of the system. And what you get out of the system, again, is a waste product that is so um, dense in its nutrient values that if you were to pour it, say, on your grass, it would actually kill the grass. Or if you were to pour it on other uh, plants, it would kill those plants. So it kind of is dumping in your driveway. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's often true. So the idea is waste in both of those systems, a detriment. We're trying to eliminate that detriment and improve upon this system by combining the two aquaculture and hydroponic concepts We take the waste of the fish, pump it into a hydroponic-like grow bed, which is uh, it colonized with a bacteria, and we can get into specifics uh, later, but colonizes with a bacteria that converts the ammonia from the fish waste into nitrogen uh, fertilizer that the plants love, 
they uptake all of this ammonia, nitrites, nitrate, and because the plants absorb it, they clean the water. It's returned to the fish tank. The fish are happy. The plants are happy. And uh, we get two things to eat, you know, the protein source as well as produce. Very, very cool. And for those that are maybe, and I know this is a visual thing, but maybe doing the best you can, can you explain maybe the basic mechanical functionality, starting with the fish tank, the path the water takes, what the grow media is like, and sort of, again, it's visual, but basically how the system functions. All right, so you could start from a very small scale. All of us have seen an aquarium in our life, so that's an easy visual that we can work with. Um, and, in fact, we grow out of our aquarium. We've got 20 goldfish, and we grow enough lettuce to feed our family of five pretty much every day of the week, and we can grow it in our basement with the grow light in the middle of winter or grow it uh, in a sunny window, you know, maybe in the middle of summer or outside. So, basically, you have a tank. It could be a small 20-gallon aquarium. It could be as big as a 2,000-gallon blue poly tank that's used for uh, aquaculture purposes. So obviously the size of the system will will depend on the tank that you choose. Inside of that tank, uh, typically we place a pump. And in a small system, you'd have a small water pump. In a big system, you'd use a large water pump. That pump is used to move water from the tank up into a grow bed of sorts. And there's a whole variety of ways that you can design and build aquaponic systems. But for most practical purposes and those that would be interested on a hobby level of doing this, that grow bed would be filled with a gravel-like media, anywhere from a small pea gravel to a gravel river rock shape, uh, gravel like you might have in your driveway, lava rock. Some people choose to use a hydroponic media. It's called hydrogen, and it's a clay pebble. And it's very nice, lightweight. It's really beautiful to work with. However, it's pretty expensive. Uh, so you've got to kind of make your decision as to, you know, what you want for this to system to work. That media, you're talk, that media you're talking about there, it looks like, like little brown marbles, right? That's what you're speaking of? It does. Out of clay? Exactly right. right. Um, yeah, it's kind of a terracotta color, but it's exactly the size of a marble. So you're right on that. Um, and so we would pump water from the fish tank, uh, and typically we look to gather water from the bottom of the fish tank because that's where a lot of the fish waste is going to be collecting. It gets pumped up into the grow bed, and a lot of times you may hear the terms flood and drain in aquaponics or hydroponics. The idea with flood and drain is that we fill the bed of uh, gravel media that the plants live in with a certain amount of water to a certain depth, and then all of that water would drain out. Some people also call it ebb and flow. And the idea with that is as the water fills up, obviously it supplies the nutrients and the water that the plants need at the root system. We also oxygenate that water. So the plant roots are receiving the three things that are vital for their production, which is nutrients, water, and air. And then they get the sun from either, obviously, the sun itself or from uh, grow lights, if that's the mechanism that, of choice. With this in mind, then, the water fills and then the water drains. And over a period of time, this could be anywhere from, say, every 30 minutes on a timer or through a process of a siphon sort of mechanism, this can fill and drain either you know, faster or slower. 
Um, but as this operation works, that water uh, goes through each one of those pieces of gravel or hydrogen media. It takes up all of that uh, ammonia again and does that conversion, which is a beautiful thing. We think of bacteria being bad, but these bacteria are very, very beneficial. Nitrify or neutrifies that water for those plants, and then the plants get what they need in nitrogen. Very cool. And I think one of the things I really want people to take from what you just said is, and I think it was a big misconception by a lot of folks that are interested in aquaponics but haven't ever done it, the water's not, a, even if it is a constantly flowing system, it's not constantly soaking wet where the plants are growing. Right. It fills up and it's, it siphons. You said something there that I hadn't really ever heard of before, that you could do a siphon or a timer and I've always yep. seen systems built with a siphon. So once the water hits a certain level, like a bell siphon, it'll overflow the bell siphon. The siphon will open. The water drains out. The siphon closes, and the process begins again, and that's automated. And the time right. is based on how much water flow and how big the tanks are. You mentioned a timer system. So is there another way to do this where it just simply does it by time, and do you prefer one over the other? Um, if you use a timer as an alternative, and that's two of probably ten different designs that are out there, um, but if you were to use the timer scenario, typically what you do is create a series of pipes around the top part of the grow bed, and instead of allowing it to fill all the way up, um, it's more like a um, uh, one of those hoses, a drip type system that you'd have maybe outside. And so it's creating kind of a drip system toward the top of the roots. And so it doesn't fill necessarily the whole bed. It has holes in the bottom of the bed that would automatically drain as soon as the water is coming in. So in that scenario, that particular type of design, you would uh, just be kind of hitting those roots for that 15 minutes the timer's on and then not for 45 minutes or something like that. So obviously and that system would drain slower than a flush and drain system because it would it, it would kind of have to, or am yeah, I missing something? Exactly. So it does it nope, would drain right. slower. Okay, cool. Um, I would like you to kind of talk a little bit about the sustainability of a system like this. I mean, I'm a big gardener. A lot of our listeners are gardeners, and, and there's a lot to be said for gardening, but there's a lot of inputs. And we do try to do a lot of permaculture, too, and perennial plantings and all, but aquaponics is really beautiful for growing those annual vegetables that generally require a lot of inputs and a lot of um, recycling and not always the positive type of recycling, where this system right. is a lot more of a closed-loop system, correct? Um, I guess, uh, you know, there's contention in the word closed loop, as you probably know. Some people are adamant that it's only closed loop if you make your own food, and it's only closed loop if you don't, you know, if you have a water resource. Yeah, notice I you said make your own more, electricity. Yeah, no, notice I said more of a. So I, I don't more like that. Of, I absolutely agree. <laughs> I don't feel in absolutes because it's very, very difficult to make everything an absolute, but we can get sure. closer to that goal, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that, and and that was definitely our intention. In the sustainable aspects of aquaponics, I mean, comparatively speaking, if we think about the traditional methods of agriculture, and I want to say right now they have done what they've done to feed us for a very long time, and they will continue to do that job of feeding an, an ever-increasing world population with fewer available fossil fuels, with more dramatic climate issues, uh, with greater prices, you know, at the pump and all these other factors, 
traditional agriculture is is still a very very vital and necessary part of our world. However, I think we need to do some work smarter, not harder kind of sorts of things, and also find ways to improve upon what ha- is available to us. So from a sustainability standpoint, aquaponics does a couple things for us. One, nitrogen fertilizer is an immense demand on natural gas. To produce it takes something like 10 times the amount of natural gas to produce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that comes out of it. It's just not a sustainable scenario because we will eventually run out of uh, natural gas and we have to go to other countries. In fact, we have 10 plants in Trinidad and Tobago currently that are producing natural gas for us. When their supply runs out, the next places are Venezuela, Ukraine, Russia, and Iraq, not all of our best friends. So, And that obviously increases our dependence on other countries, not something I think we should be you know, partaking in. So nitrogen fertilizer is not something that we can continue to, to be so dependent on. We get actual nitrogen, natural nitrogen-based fertilizer here in an aquaponic system, and it's supplied to us because the fish are just living and doing their natural thing. So it's a very beautiful scenario, and hey, why don't we use nature's best resource as opposed to making use of resources that are finite, and let's make use of this system, and then, oh, by the way, we get food out of it, too, because we can eat those fish when they're done with their little job. So that's one example. Um, another reason why this is so sustainable is food miles. Um, we talk about it a lot, but we've actually done a survey that says food transportation of tilapia, which um, over 85% of our tilapia in the U.S. is produced in China, in Thailand, in Costa Rica, in Vietnam, and, you know, because they can, they can produce it at a very low cost, but they have to fly it here, and they're also ruining some of their wetlands to produce uh, that tilapia at such a cheap price that we can consume it here in such mass quantities in the United States. In addition to that, things like strawberries, tomatoes, lettuce, things that we could be growing in our system, say in a greenhouse or at this time of year or year-round, our survey revealed that typically a plate of food has a minimum of 1,500 food miles. We use that same calculation, and the minute we added tilapia coming from China, because the other countries were places like Mexico, Canada, Chile, etc., that meal of salad, tilapia, fish, tomatoes, some herbs, and strawberries was 16,000 miles to get to our plate. We could have eaten that same meal right out of our system coming out of our backyard, and it probably would have been more fresh. It probably would have been far more satisfying to have produced for sure. And, gosh, it's a pretty entertaining thing to have a barbecue with your buddies over and, you know, create your entire meal in one simple place. You didn't have any packaging. You didn't have any transportation. There was no refrigeration costs. All of these things make it just a really fantastic way to be more sustainable, I think, in the way we're eating our food. Wow, and I'll tell you what, I think the one only word I would change that you just used in that entire entire dialogue there is probably. 
I don't think there's any probably about it being more fresh or probably being more satisfied. I think I, I changed that one word to definitely because how could something right. not be more fresh when instead of being in a Chinese bog somewhere, put on an airplane, flown you know six thousand miles just for the fish, sent to the yeah. store, put and, and you pull it out of the tank and zip zip with the electric fillet knife, or I like to do the hole with the bones in them on the grill, and it's it's done right there. I mean you yep. can't you can't do it fresher. Nope, you absolutely can't. And it's such a conversation piece. I mean, we've never, ever met a person yet, and we've been in this business now uh, almost two years. We've never met a person that said, this is stupid or gross, you know, or yeah. never, I never would want to eat that. You know, a challenge that our food system faces beyond some of the things we've talked about with food miles and fertilizer issues is food safety, I mean, if you think about it, almost every day on the news, we're hearing more and more about E. coli outbreaks or salmonella issues or mercury contamination in fish or overfishing populations that are being decimated or PCBs or any of these factors. Or let's genetically, really... let's genetically modify the food oh, and, then, yeah. and then we'll spray it with herbicide and then right. you can eat that. And I just, them. I. You know, because there's even been organic gardeners that have been having problems lately. They go out and they buy compost, and they go to plant, and, yep. and a lot of things will grow, but none of the legumes are, will grow because they're the most susceptible to the herbicide. And there's herbicide right. residue in composted cow manure, and it, it's well, um, and it's alarming. Unfortunately, even yeah, even the fact that some of the food fed to the animals, you know, they there's something sprayed on, say, the alfalfa or the grains that the animals are fed. So what comes out is also going to have some of those residues uh, that, that get processed, and they are susceptible then to the E. coli and salmonella and other things. Fish don't have those components in their physiological makeup, so we never have to worry about those soil-borne uh, diseases within a system like this. Now, it's not to say that there's not a potential for pests. I mean, when you have plants, you have potentials for things like white flies or or different types of, of um, pests. We can't put pesticides in these systems. So if you were to get an aphid infestation, you'd have to work with some more natural ways of controlling that, possibly with uh, predator bugs, which sound terrible, but typically they're things like ladybugs. Correct. <laughs> or praying mantis or something like that. Lace wings. Yeah, lace wings. We might use a light vinegar solution depending on the situation or a light soap-based solution. We can't put pesticides into these systems, and we don't need fertilizer, obviously, because that's being provided uh, by the fish themselves. So it's a very clean system, and it helps us then alleviate some of the concerns with the food products that we do receive as to what's their quality, what's their safety. We can turn a lot of the insects into food, too, can't we? I've seen folks rig up a light over top of their fish tank, and in the evening all the bugs that come around there, half of them end up banging into the light bulb, falling in the water, and then the fish just eat them. Well, and that's actually one of the fun things about this is that, yeah, the fish do eat them, and sometimes when we have had an infestation, we pull the plants out that are particularly being bothered, and we'll swish those plants down into the tank and, you know, let all the bugs be uh, taken into the water there for the fish to eat. They get a little snack, so they're happy, and sometimes the plant comes back and doesn't have an issue, and, you know, other times it's too late. But, they, you know, people are really in control of managing the quality not only of the water, the fish environment, the plant environment, but it's so much easier to deal with. We don't have to till soil. 
We don't have to weed the systems. We don't really have to deal with anything more than planting, transplanting, and harvesting, and transplanting only if we want to move things around, but that's very simple in this media. The other thing, and I get people say, well, I hate to clean fish tanks, so I'd never do this because that's really a pain. You have to take all the fish out and go through that. We've never had to clean a fish tank because this process of reusing waste consumes what you would otherwise have to be pulling out of that system and, you know, flushing down the toilet or something or otherwise being dumped out. And any waste that you could collect if you really did want to go that extra step, pour it on your house plants or pour it on your garden and back. Fish emulsion is probably one of the most beneficial types of um you know, plant applications that you can have that's obviously a very natural supply of some amazing nutrients. I mean, I'd go so far as to say after you filleted that tilapia and you've gotten every bit you can get off it, take the skeleton and the head and the tail and bury it under your rose bushes. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, because I was, I was a kid, every uh, spring, when it was the first, and it was real hard to get a kid to do this, right? My grandma would so take your fishing pole and go get me some sunnies, you know, and I'd go get a bunch of them little sunfish. And I'd have to go dig a hole and plant one under every rose bush. But she had the most yeah. beautiful rose. She had the most beautiful roses in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of fertilizer there. Let's talk a little bit about fish types. You mentioned tilapia. Let's talk about types of fish and what we're going to feed them based on what type we have. Okay. Um, if you were to choose tilapia, there's a number of different varieties, and you know it's challenging because state by state, we live in Colorado, and different states have different regulations as to what they will allow people to have. Some states require you to have licensing. Some don't care unless you're selling it to restaurants. Uh, it, it really depends, but everybody requires they can't get out into a waterway. And so as long as you have a, a system where you have a tank, you know, usually that's never a case unless for whatever reason you got tired of it, got rid of it. Tilapia-like temperature range from about 72 to about 78 degrees. And so if you live in a warmer climate, it'll probably be easier to maintain that temperature. Here in Colorado, we do have to supplementally heat the water a good majority of the time, but we always try to use as many of the, you know, sustainable type options as possible, like having barrels of water on the roof, black barrels that get hot, okay. and then feeding that water down through the system. So can you talk um, a little bit, let's let you pause you there and talk a little bit more about yep. heating, and then we'll go back into the different fish varieties. Yep. Um, so heating a tank for tilapia, uh, otherwise, I mean, you might use electric heaters or try to get some sort of, um, y y you have to heat the water. So there are so many different ways. We try to use waste heat whenever possible. Um, solar, solar heat is wonderful, and in fact, there's a good trade-off. If you have a tank in a greenhouse, it heats over the day from having the sun on it, but because water is such a great thermal mass, it also will use that thermal mass to kind of help heat that greenhouse, say, overnight as well. Um, so it kind of has a, a multifunctional purpose, which is pretty nice. We choose in many of our systems to try to pick other fish in the wintertime that we don't have to heat as much. So as an example, we have a system right now that's going with trout. Um, trout are a little bit more sensitive to temperature variations, to oxygen, to water quality parameters. They're definitely not a beginner fish. However, once you get them going, and you do a good job of it, they're pretty fun to raise, and obviously they're very, very tasty. Um, 
so we really like the trout, but you do have to keep colder temperatures. Now, in our greenhouse, we can't have the trout past, say, April or May because the water starts getting so hot that the trout would, um, their health would suffer pretty significantly. So, so it's just not worth having them in the system. So we'll have a big fish fry coming up here of trout pretty soon. And what, yes, what size trout do you start with? Because they're kind of a slower growing fish than a tilapia. So how long do you keep them for? And kind of what is your beginning trout size, your end trout size? Where do you, where do you get them from? Yeah, so we have, in, uh, like we said, we're in Colorado. We have a supplier here in uh, the Boulder area, Liley uh, Trout Farms. Um, used to be Klein Trout Farms. And we would pick up probably 8-inch trout, say, in September. And then by the time we want to harvest them in May, we're probably seeing a 12- to 14-inch trout. So they're perfect plate size, how right? Cold. Yep, absolutely perfect plate size. And we didn't have to heat the water the entire winter for the most part. We haven't heated it yet in the greenhouse. And so we're eliminating that particular input. Um, and, you know, whenever we can eliminate demands on resources like that, uh, we always choose to. At the same time, you're growing different crops with a cold water fish like that. We typically grow watercress and a variety of lettuce greens just because they're much more tolerant to the colder temperatures. Very cool. Um, Alice, Go ahead. You were actually asking earlier about food. Do you mm-hmm. want to yeah, what do we, yeah, what do we feed them? Okay. Um, this is a controversy a little bit because, as you probably have heard, fish food is oftentimes based on fish meal, and that means that we need to do some fishing to get that fish meal, and that's not a sustainable practice. So alternatives are being investigated by the researchers of the world as to alternate proteins that could be put in for um, the different types of fish. Fish obviously need a very specific combination of protein, carbohydrates, you know, for energy, and then those nutrient supplements. And so the, the, the manufactured fish foods have already come up with what are the best blends of those elements. It's not to say that they're perfect because there are some variations in that. We use a a reasonable amount. We don't feed our fish the recommended volume of fish food. We do use the fish food because it is an important part of producing the proper amount of nutrition to build that fish flesh that we will be eating eventually, so that's critical. But in the tilapia tanks, in the trout tanks, we also throw in a lot of chopped vegetables that we produce. We grow our own duckweed um, as a very good supply of additional vegetable product uh, for them. And the duckweed's high in protein, right? It can be. Certain strains of duckweed can be very high in protein. Um, Some of them not so much, like, you know, ones you get out of ponds. But it re- So that depends. But, yes, we try to find the right strains of duckweed that can create that protein supplement. And as well for protein, you can include things like uh, what's called soldier fly or black fly larva. And I'll say the um, non-scientific term everybody will know, maggots. Uh, they're fast-growing and they're, you know, if you get a compost pile, you put the wrong things into. It doesn't take long to see a whole family of those that you can then uh, give your tilapia some treats. And worms, of course, they're always very happy with, although we like to keep our worms for the vermicompost, but every now and again they get a treat. 
on worms, and uh, I mean, I know that this would work for trout. I, I'm, I'm not real familiar with tilapia. It's something I'm learning about because setting up my operation in Arkansas, I should actually probably have an easier time with them than maybe you guys do up there. Um, ha, ha, what about like uh, mealyworms? Because uh, they're easy to propagate. Yep. yep, absolutely. I mean, any small larva-like or worm-like. Um, you could definitely feed them because that will be a good protein source. Uh, so eat all of those are, are effective ways that you can supplement that food. I wouldn't eliminate it, although we've had some people that have said we've completely eliminated the manufactured foods. Um, and there is good reason, I guess, for that. I mean, you hear stories of people saying, well, this is all corn-based and it's no different than feeding your, you know, hogs, cattle, chickens, or whatever, all this corn-based product. There are certain foods that are very heavily corn-based, uh, but a lot of them have, you know, other soy-based, rice-based, sure. wheat-based, etc. And then, to me, the stuff that is fish meal-based, or large amounts of fish meal in it, I, I know about, I know how fishing can be unsustainable, but I guess my point is, most of that fish meal is byproduct of fish that's going up to otherwise to market. It's being harvested anyway, it's a waste yep. by. It might be an unsustainable practice, but it's a it's a waste byproduct that if it wasn't converted into something like that would be dumped somewhere. And if you take that fraction of that waste and say, okay, now it's becoming valuable and going in your aquaponic system, that tilapia on my plate still has a hell of a lot less input than one from China. The, the comparison exactly. is night and day. Absolutely, and you know, uh, although there are regulatory compliance things, and there are U.S. inspectors that go to the um, fish manufacturing facilities or fish farms in other countries, they definitely have different practices as to how the fish uh, receive their nutrients. Uh, and I won't go too far into it, but Discover Channel had a you know world's worst jobs or grossest jobs or something like that which included fish farming as one of them, um, unfortunately giving kind of fish farming the bad rap um, because it just looked gross based on the way they were displaying this, and yet this was another country's way of fish farming. So, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. that we, We've had toys coming into the United States from China where they're for toddlers that are going to chew on them, and they had oh, lead, yeah. lead-based paint. <laughs> if they'll put lead-based paint on a, a, a Tykes, you know, truck, I, yeah. I I do worry about what they would do with food because it's such a mass production mentality, and it's also, well, this isn't for us, this is for them. And, yep. you know, you put more care into things when you make it for your own family than you do when you make it for a stranger. I, I know you shouldn't, but I think it's a human characteristic. Um, I also wanted to uh, kind of talk about now how this can be because I think there's a lot of people out there saying this is all great. And if I had you know a few acres, I could put in a great big hoop house and I could produce five tons of this stuff a year or whatever. Can you talk about how this is actually useful to the individual that just is trying to be more sustainable and and for my audience really more independent. I mean that's what it's really more about for us. The sustainability here comes as a byproduct of independence. Yep, I absolutely agree with that. And I think what I'm going to use is the example of Australia um, as kind of our, here's what they've done to see what is possible for us in the U.S. Australia went over the last, say, 10-ish, 12-ish years through a pretty significant drought. And a good part of their country 
um, as big as it is, just doesn't have a lot of arable land. I mean, it's that's flat out the way it's shaped, uh, the way it, it stacks up. So during this significant drought, their recognition of their ability to reasonably supply food to their population said, you know what, let's take charge of what it is that we're doing. We're not going to import all of our food from other places. We're going to start taking charge of this. What does that look like? And they're big fish eaters there, obviously, and they have a good variety of fish there, Murray cod and and uh, perch, and they call these yabies. They're kind of like little tiny lobsters or uh, crawfish, I guess, for us. Barramundi. So, barramundi, yeah, that's another fish, one of my favorites, actually, which I want to bring. Uh, there's a big company in Massachusetts called Australius that's trying to bring barramundi to the U.S. in a big way, and it's amazing, really fantastic fish. Um, anyway, so they've got these different really great fish, and they put the message out to take charge of your food security. In a sense, not like, okay, somebody's going to attack and this is going to be a problem, something we all should still be considering, especially like you were talking about China. Not always our best friend, but a big supplier of a lot of different foods for us, tilapia and and shrimp being two of the biggest. Um, But with that in mind, they said, let's put emphasis on people in their homes people in their apartments, people in community centers, schools, uh, retirement homes, places of worship. Let's build these systems so that people can make use of them in the location that they need them, their home, you know, their school, etc., as opposed to let's be dependent on other countries to, to make sure that we get the food we want when we want it. It may not always be the case that it's either A, available, be that everybody's always friendly in that way or that the food security can be guaranteed or that we have the ability to transport it over those long distances in the future with changes in our availability of fossil fuels. You know, I think so there's, all those things there, and, there's some more to that, though. I mean, it's not just can we do it, what's the cost of doing it? So yeah, fuel price sure. double, we can still get the food here, but if the fuel price is double, the food price doubles. And then, to me, overall, we're looking at a global food shortage in the future. Um, right. The modern agriculture is like a necessary evil at this point, but if they don't change some of their practices and it doesn't look like they're going to anytime soon, they're destroying they're destroying their own their own livelihood. And yep. in America today, our biggest export isn't anything that anybody ever thinks of. Our biggest export goes mostly into the oceans, into the skies, and it's topsoil. And we export more topsoil through erosion than any other commodity in this country. And we can only keep dumping, you know, chemical-based nitrogen fertilizer on the ground for so long before even the sterile sponge soaking that up won't work. So there's going to be food shortages. And it doesn't mean, you know, when you say that, especially from where I come from, people are like, oh, you think all the food's going to run, nobody's going to eat. It's not that there's going to be no food. It's going to be there's a heck of a lot less food. And the less yep. there is of anything, basic economics, what you learn in, in junior high, supply-demand curve. You When you cut the supply, especially on something, it's not like cutting the supply of an iPod. Um, you know, I don't need an iPod. I want one, but I don't need one. i got to eat. Yep. This is yep. as nuts and bolts as it gets. Absolutely. And we were actually talking to a broker friend about this not too long ago that, you know, he, at the time, before all the financial things were going on, he's just like, you know, you need money in the bank, you need money in savings, you need money, money, money. I said, John, you can't eat money. There's a critical point in life that says 
you, yeah, maybe having more money means you could purchase more food as the prices go up. And I'm not a fear monger kind of person. I, I totally respect the viewpoint that says take care of yourself, take care of those around you, make sure that you are prepared. I think that's a really fantastic thing. But I'm also not on the other side of it, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I think a lot of bad things can go on. But we are very ingenious people that come up with intelligent ways. Not everybody, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I think that we have intelligent ways of overcoming a lot of challenges. And honestly, I don't want to upsell it. I don't think I need to. I think aquaponics is one of those things that's an intelligent way of using a 2,000-year-old technology, for all practical purposes, of reusing waste to get more out of less. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's creating a, a perfect representation of what nature does well without producing waste. Something we've been very good at for so many years is producing waste. Now let's make use of that waste in a very more positive, you know, positive way. And eventually these will cut costs. I mean, these systems can cost money. And if you look over the Internet, there's a whole bunch of different sites that provide systems from anywhere from several thousand dollars to twenty, forty, sixty thousand dollars if you want to buy big systems. On the small scale, you can find something for a couple hundred dollars. We've done the math on some of these systems, and if you were to have a reasonable uh, dedication to a harvest schedule, meaning every, say, six weeks you are putting in seeds, every six weeks you are taking out plants that have basically reached its maturity, you could turn over about $1,000 worth of food in a year. And I'm talking about a system that, that would cost about $1,000. But if you think about it, that's almost a capital expenditure, meaning, yeah, I, I, I bought this thing for, say, $1,000 if that's what the price was. But it could be with you for an indefinite amount of time, and you don't necessarily have to worry about what if we have a shortage of water, which in Colorado we do. You can't. You can't water your garden in Colorado in certain years, and we're starting to stack up with the – you guys have had all the snow in the yeah. central and, and uh, eastern area. My mother lives in Massachusetts. She's had 109 inches this year already. <laughs> We've had two wow. inches in Colorado, and you expect us to be a snowy – well, state. and that's going to hurt, hurt you come spring because all of that typical snow melt that I don't think yeah. people realize that in a lot of the western states, it's not the rain that provides the water. Well, it, there's some rain, yeah. obviously, but the big spring rains that we get in the east coast, that's not what you guys get. You guys get the snow melt. Yep. And now, if rain no snow, it can't melt. Quite a bit. Okay, well, that, yeah. at least you got that then. I, I wanted but to talk about... Colorado's different. Yeah, it, it uh, a lot of it evaporates because we have such an amazing dry climate. So we have water issues here that are very concerning. Similarly, I guess to what happens in Australia, and I know other parts of even this country have experienced drought. And with the climate change and and the concerns, I guess about I don't know if we want to call it climate change issues, but the fact that the patterns of weather distribution, where one couple years you might get drought and a couple years you might get flood and any Absolutely. crazy thing in between. We've got to take control of here's the way a system can work and not be dependent on water if it's not available. And you guys got some weird water laws up there, too. Like, I do. I do rain barrels off my roof, and because of the water shortages, there's a lot of places in Colorado where they, they've outlawed that. I think right. it's foolish because I don't think that water ends up in the watershed the way they think it does. It ends up hitting the ground, running really, really fast to get somewhere and get evaporated because uh, it doesn't get into the ground 
because we've, we've, you know, everything we do we, in agriculture today, we flatten it out. We ignore contours. I don't want to get off on a tear on that, but you guys have that issue as well. I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the, the home production stuff and some of the advantages. I think one thing people aren't familiar with I'd like to hear you comment on is the fact that you can produce so much more biomass with an aquaponic system, specifically with the protein, because unlike trying to grow a rabbit uh, or a chicken, the animal's in a zero-gravity environment, so their, their conversion of food to, to protein is much higher, right? Absolutely. And in fact, actually, fish are one of the only protein sources that require as little input as they do to actually create their, their energy output. Um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they are top of the scale, whereas beef, for example, is the absolute opposite end of the scale for how much you have to put in to get, say, one pound of beef out. Um, so that's pretty dramatic. Uh, as well, the fish, because they're working for you the whole time, I think I mentioned earlier, they're, they're serving double duty. They're providing you the energy source that they would have from the protein themselves, but they're also providing you an energy source in the extent that they ha they provide that nutrient food for the plants. The plants, if you think about it, for all of you gardeners out there, if you think about the way a plant works, as it has to push its roots down into the soil, it has to expend an immense amount of energy. And I know all the good gardeners are tilling their soil and adding that compost and, and doing all those really wonderful things, but there's still an effort to push into that space. And they're looking for nutrients and they're looking for water, and so they need a lot more space around them. Whereas in an aquaponic system, they've got that warm bath of water at their roots. It's already oxygenated, so they're getting that. They already have the nutrients. They don't have to do the hard effort that the plant doesn't have to have that energy expended in its root production because all that's easy for it. So then all of the energy that the plant uses is in the upward food production side of it, the leaves of the lettuce or putting it into the tomatoes. And so we have a faster growth rate, a faster yield. As well, we have a much closer density. We can put plants closer together. And in fact, you can investigate. There's four or five really amazing um, vertical mechanisms that have been kind of first came about, I think, with hydroponics, but now are being uh, used more extensively in aquaponics. Some of these towers, if you think of, say, a fence post, and then imagine putting holes all the way down the fence post and putting, say, ten plants hanging out the side of it, where you would have maybe had one head of lettuce or one strawberry plant, you now have a post sticking upright in a vertical uh, position that you now have ten strawberries in exactly that same bit of space. So you could, say, have what would may have been ten plants, you could now put a hundred plants. You know, and I've got something else on, on the with the roots, and I can't prove this. This is purely hypothetical. Based on my experience, what I've noticed is if I pull a hydro or an aquaponics grown plant out of the grow media, and I look at the diameter of the roots, they're thicker than when I pull a similar variety plant out of the dirt. And it's because I think a lot of people have a misconception that, that roots from their plants, normal plants out in the garden, grow in the dirt. They don't grow in the dirt. They grow in between the particles of soil. Right. They don't penetrate through the individual particles. Well, those particles are very small. 
And because yep. they're small, the roots have to be small to get in there. And if, you know, there's stuff with big tap roots like, like, like daikon and stuff like that that drive their way through. But most roots, they fill out these little hair roots everywhere and they find all these little pathways. In permaculture, we call them a fast carbon pathway. And that's great. That's their job. But in a grow media, there's so much space in between that media that those roots have the ability to grow thicker and healthier faster. And that root, so you might even look at the roots and go, I pull something out of the ground and it spread way, way out because it's hungry and it needs to seek. But the biomass actually seems heavier in the aquaponics system because it's thicker. So it's not about how long they are, it's how, how much mass is there, and that mass is what supports what's up top. Exactly, and I think I, I'm glad that you brought up the permaculture piece because this the aquaponics blends so nicely with permaculture. But I know that in permaculture, there's this immense amount of emphasis placed on the soil and how to build that soil and the nutrient values and all this sort of thing. And I've had permaculture students ask us directly, like, okay, if you're growing in gravel, you're losing all of the amazing things, those mycelium. The, you know, those little amazing bugs that are in the soil and as they're breaking down organic material, you're losing all that. And the answer to some extent is not completely. The soil itself is that mechanism not only to hold the roots, it's there to hold the nutrients to some extent and to provide that basin for where the water can uh, get to the roots. But unfortunately, as well, soil also allows that water to either, depending on the soil makeup, wash away too fast, as you mentioned earlier, or be absorbed into the, the atmosphere faster if it's too clay, or be lost to weeds because there's competition if you're not getting out there and weeding your garden every day. So the soil itself is, yeah, a holding ground, and there are some amazing things about well-developed soil, but we don't necessarily miss those things in an aquaponics system because in a gravel uh, type scenario, those the different types of gravel, you're still getting that nutrient breakdown. And in fact, we often add other elements that you might also add back into your um, soil itself, things like calcium. We often grind up uh, oyster shells as an example. We oftentimes put worms in our grow beds to not only break down the biozones that might um, be created or the anaerobic zones that sometimes get created if there's too many solids in the system. But as we all know, worm castings are probably one of the most phenomenally nutrient-rich uh, materials as a soil. And so those worms right in the grow bed, everybody always assumes they're going to drown, but worms are pretty good <laughs> about living in a place where they have water fluctuations. And uh, so they also then can provide some of that nutrient. And we often add worm tea or, if necessary, can supplement with things like seaweed extract into the system. Again, natural ways that we can make the fish comfortable but also provide nutrients to those plants. Uh, to me, permaculture, yeah, I would say aquaponics is permaculture as far as I'm concerned. It, it's very closely tied. I don't even think it's closely tied. I think they're – because you're looking at – if you look at permaculture, it's all it, it all goes back to – uh, the, the prime directive in three ethics. So the prime directive is the only the only thing we can do. Uh, the only sensible choice is to take responsibility for our own existence and the existence of our children. Does yeah. does aquaponics pass the test? Yes. Uh, the three ethics: care of the earth, pass the test, absolutely. Care of people, yes. And the, the creation and return of surplus. It is permaculture, and that it, it, if it, see to me if it meets those four tests. It's permaculture, and now we're stacking functions, we're stacking form, and we're also saying we still need soil. We're not going to grow an apple tree 
in the middle of an aquaponics greenhouse, or, you know, you probably could, but it's not the best place in the world for a standing grow of blackberries or raspberries. So there's a place for soil. All we're doing is we're creating an optimum environment for something that requires so much input otherwise. Digging in a garden sucks. I mean, I I like it, but but come on, it gets old and, like, you know, you go out of town for two weeks and having to have a kid come over and pay him five bucks a day to water your 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 your, your garden. Uh, aquaponic system, it's on. Is you put a backup power system in I place, and I I guess that's something we probably should mention. You probably really want to have some backup power source because if that thing shuts down for six hours while you're away, you lose all your fish. You definitely lose all your fish, and we've we've had an incident, you know, that we lost power. Luckily, we got there in time. The fish. Uh, they were perch at the time and were pretty sensitive to those oxygen changes. Half of them lived, half of them died. The hardier ones, obviously, were the ones that survived. Um, but, yeah, you would probably want to have backup power. Interestingly enough, there are a number of these systems, and, in fact, some um, organizations, I'll mention Travis Huey of uh, FAST is his group. Uh, it's a sustainable, I'm trying to think of the first word, uh, he takes what he deems barrel ponics, which are those blue 55-gallon barrels that you see syrup and, and soda and other things come in, and takes these to other countries. Nielsen and Paid, another organization in Wisconsin, has taken their systems to Haiti after the earthquake there. The premise here is it doesn't have to have an extensive amount of external power source. It's convenient, I have to admit, to have our air pumps and our water pumps on electric uh, connections. We're converting as quickly as we can to a solar option and a generator as a backup. But in some of these villages, they have uh, generators hooked up to, say, a bicycle. And the villagers at predefined times will come in and bicycle, pedal for a period of time, run the pump for that period of time, uh, and, and make use of, I guess, non-fossil uh, dependent, fossil fuel dependent mechanisms to run these systems. You would personally, in, in your home system, because you don't necessarily want to kill your fish, although we have several fish farmer friends that have said, until you kill a million fish, you're not a true fish farmer. I am not striving for that number. <laughs> I feel guilty every single one that I find belly up in my system. And to me, they, it, it, luckily, I, there's only been about ten. Is all their plate size when they die, and they just just uh, yeah. Then they're unfortunately just, no. When you lose them when they're little, you're like, oh man, because you feel like you wasted the resource. Now another thing on fish death, you know, and I'm talking about when it's time, it's time for them to graduate to the plate. I think another thing that that maybe makes this a really advantageous thing is unlike a rabbit or unlike a chicken, I think a lot of people will have an easier time doing the deed when the time comes. My wife's like, you know, if you want to have chickens when we move, you can have chickens, but if you're killing them, you're killing them, and I don't want to know. She's like, I'll even eat it, but tell me it's not one from the store. You know, but, you know, fishing, I'll pull up a, a pull a fish in the boat, and when we come home, she's like, give them the knife. You know, they don't have, and it's not that you don't, you don't want to be cruel or anything, but they just don't have the the personality that something like a mammal does. So I think maybe it's easier for people to uh, to take care of their own, uh, you know, the, the killing portion of eating. Because a lot of eating is based on killing, and we've gotten sanitized yeah. from that. We think steaks come in packages. They don't. They're big cows that run around with pretty brown eyes. And trust me, yeah. I'm a carnivore. I'll eat all the cows you bring to me. Um, 
But for a lot of people, they've disassociated with that for so long. And now you say, well, raise rabbits. And they can raise the rabbit, and it comes time to, uh, to, to break the neck and do the deed, and it's hard. And I think most people can handle a fish. Well, yes and no. And honestly, I grew up, and I hated the, the fact that I grew up with parents that wanted to homestead. We moved out of the city. We moved to the mountains back in the 70s, and we had chickens, and we ate them, and we ate the eggs, and we had ducks and geese, and we ate them, and rabbits, and we ate them, and baby goats, and we ate them, and we got the milk, and we named the goats, you know, sausage and bacon, not knowing that that came from a pig and not a goat. It didn't matter. I mean, we ate anything we grew or or, or raised, we ate, besides donkeys. We, we adopted them from the Grand Canyon. We didn't eat them. Thankfully, <laughs> they stopped someplace. Donkey steak does not sound appetizing anyway. Yeah, don- donkey steak, not in this country, it doesn't work, but yeah. maybe there's someplace. Now, I agree with you, having also grown up fishing, I hated fish as a kid, uh, and I would tolerate all the others, but I hated fish as a kid, and it didn't bother me to catch that fish, whack it on the head on a rock, and, yeah, have it in a pan for dinner that night um, by the campfire. It didn't bother me. However, it is an amazing thing when you have them in your own backyard and you do get to that point where literally every time you walk out there, they sense you're coming. Tilapia especially socialize incredibly fast. And they see you coming, and they're right at the top with their little mouths going, Mommy, feed me, <laughs> like little birdies. <laughs> and when it does come time to pull them out, it does kind of give you a pause to think, okay, these things have been not a cuddly pet. I mean, yeah, bunnies were much harder for us as kids to have uh, to take out than obviously a fish that you're not cuddling every day. But there is a, a pause, I think, that takes place. And in reading Omnivore's Dilemma a, a not too long ago, this pause, I think, is a very important part of recognizing and maybe being reverent more so about the food that we do eat. We get too sterilized, as you said, or or too um, oblivious to the fact that these were creatures. And I'm not going to go down the PETA path. In fact, uh, the, they recently had a new advertisement targeted at children and, and moms about chicken of the sea and how could we cruelly, you know, bring home tuna and all this kind of stuff. I don't feel that way at all. We need protein sources, and we absolutely, I love bacon and, and, and steak just like you do and fish mm, as well. Mmm, bacon. <laughs> uh, but it is kind of difficult. And tilapia, as I mentioned earlier, are hard to kill. So as you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a quick, at least I can get it over with quickly, and you're trying to fillet the thing, and there's still a flip or two in there, and I was like, come on, just die, because I don't want to take the guilt anymore. <laughs> you know, but I, I do think you're right, and... For instance, I remember reading an interview with Joel, Joel Salatin, who who is uh, yep. one of my heroes, honestly. And uh, he um, he was talking about you know slaughtering chickens and how they do it with the with the killing cones, and you hang them upside down and, and cut the neck and bleed them out and all. And one of the things he said is the most important thing about doing this is don't do it daily. Leave time in between. Do not desensitize yourself to it. You should have some emotion. You should have some feeling, and you should have some connection. And then when you sit down and you eat that meal, you should have some level of gratitude that this creature's life was given so that you could continue your own. And it's not about, like, sobbing or being weak about it. It's about, a, just as you said, a reverence for, for, for life. Yep. 
And I think that's an appropriate thing. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be pulling fish out of here all the time, although we're working into the commercial community side of things that it is going to get to a point that's big enough that we will be taking out large harvests of fish over a period of time. Luckily, we have some fish processors in our area that have said that, hey, you know, here's what you do. You throw them on ice for a little bit of time, go through this purge process, and then we'll take them whole within one hour of being on ice, and then we'll do the gutting and filleting. Not anybody's favorite job, but much more pleasant having having done that with chickens and rabbits. Definitely much more pleasant than... Uh, yeah, than that. And, and that is an option too. Is to ice fish down. They tend to just kind of go to sleep when you do that. They, uh, I mean, it's a common thing we would do when we were fishing is throw them in the cooler and they'll flip around in there for thirty or forty seconds, and pretty soon they're yeah. done. And uh, so that would be another way you could do it. And and that way you're still filleting them fresh and all, but uh, they're not flipping right, when you you're filleting them. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to scare anybody, but just like that, you hear the chicken and the head story. You know, you yeah. chop their heads off and they run around. Tilapia, you take them back off ice, and they are a hearty little bunch. They are surprising how much time after that that they can still give a little kick for you. Now, I, I told you what I do, but I won't, I'm not going to say that on the air because it may uh, oh, that's fine. Make, impact, impact some other people. Anybody who wants to know, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I, I do want to, as we're getting ready to wrap up, though, we've talked all about how great aquaponics is, how it works, how it functions. How does somebody get started with this? They, I mean, you do classes for people that are anywhere near your area, right? We do. We are starting to look at traveling for some courses. We realize it's not uh, effective to have large groups of people, say, come to the Denver area, but we have had people fly in for our classes recently. There are a number of uh, organizations throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, for that matter. I highly recommend for uh, anybody starting out with this, obviously, the number one place of the Internet. I mean, you can get so much information. Our website is www.coloradoaquaponics.com, and we have a number of resources that we found to be the most beneficial and useful in really providing the information out there that I think uh, people need to get started in the business and not just the fun stuff. I think so many people get intrigued by the concept, but the tough part is getting past that intriguing part and really getting down to the nuts and bolts of making it work. Because there is some challenges to overcome, like balancing pH and you know making sure that your systems are operating effectively over the long haul. I will also recommend a website, Colorado Community, or sorry, let's try that again, aquaponicscommunity.com. It's a Ning site that was created by a woman named Sylvia Bernstein, who's created a product called Aquabundance. And she has put together a um, home-based aquaponics system that is media, uh, can be used flood and drain or with a bell siphon, depending on how you want to set it up for personal production, and it's a, you know, nice-looking product. Uh, she's a friend of ours in Boulder, um, and her Ning site now has over a 1,000 members. Uh, we have an upcoming class on March 8th and 10th, an online workshop. And, again, if you go to coloradoaquaponics.com, you can uh, sign up for that particular workshop, and that would give people a really good introduction to what does it take to get up and running uh, with the basics, and we also show a lot of different uh, pictures of different types of systems, so you get a lot of design ideas. We talk about the details related to managing water quality, fish health, 
parameters and how to really make your system work very effectively. We also have slides in there to show you uh, return on investment type of costs. Um, so there's a couple resources available. There's some really good books by people out and uh, videos by uh, Joel Malcolm and uh, Murray Hallam are two individuals, Backyard Aquaponics and Practical Aquaponics. And the reason I'm pointing to some of these resources are they're really for the more home hobbyist, backyard enthusiast type person that may be able to take this concept beyond their backyard, say, into a school or community or place of worship. Because I really feel like beyond taking care of yourself, the next step and the really critical part of our profession is take this out to the bigger you know, world. Share it with your kids. Share it with your parents. Share it with your neighbors and your friends. It's about building that community. And to me, it's something anybody can do. I mean, you don't need a large system. I think one of the things that we didn't really touch on is we do need to concern ourselves with ratios, though. So we can't – I've had people say, well, I can just have this little pond, and I can just pump water out of the pond and through my system. You, you've got a ratio out of balance there, right? You do have to focus on if you have so many gallons of water, you have so much square inch of grow, grow bed or so much uh, volume of grow media, right? Well, and, yeah, that really also depends on the way you design your system, how deep the grow bed is. Typically, we try to suggest that the grow bed could be two times as large as the fish tank. So if you have a 100-gallon fish tank, you would very likely create a 200-gallon, however that works out in ratio, as far as dimensions of height and width and those kind of parameters. Very cool. But typically, there's a two-to-one. You can keep it as small as a one-to-one, and it will work, but you may have too much nitrogen buildup if you have too many fish. As far as fish go, some people say uh, one gallon to one fish. But if your one fish is an inch long, that's very different than if your one fish is one pound. Um, so we kind of do the more conservative stocking density. And, in fact, I think some of the community members are getting more to the um, five gallons of water per fish or even more ten gallons of water per fish. Wow. I would say at a minimum, if you're going to have edible fish, at a minimum you need 55 gallons. Okay. But I would say more like at least 100 gallons. And in 100 gallons, to start your system, you're probably going to want no more than about 10 fish and then add slowly. What I didn't get a chance to mention, but something that we do talk extensively about in our workshops, is the startup process. There's about a six-week time frame as these bacteria are colonizing and as the typical water parameters of pH and ammonia, nitrites and nitrates are changing. And that's a detrimental time for fish because ammonia and nitrite can be very, very serious and can kill your fish. So we've had people get so excited, they go out by a tank, they get 200 fish, they dump them all in, and two days later they're all dead. And then they go out and get two more hundred fish and they dump them all in, and two days later they're all dead. And, you know, they keep thinking, well, I've screwed up or, or I'm doing things wrong. There's a new tank syndrome, and it does take about four to six weeks. So adding 10 fish or 20 fish at a time, depending on the amount of water, is a critical step-up process, or you're going to kill all your fish. And we are running long. You're just making me think of all this great stuff that I've been, I've been thinking about over time. And I think as you get into a little bit larger systems, let's say that mid-sized home systems of 500 to 2,000 gallons, it makes a lot of sense to start creating multiple fish tanks and have multiple stages of fish so that you're bringing different fish to different uh, levels of harvest at different times. 
because if you're a home user and you're not going to really sell a lot, maybe barter a little bit, but mostly you're going to use it yourself, having 150 full-grown tilapia at one time is not necessarily what your goal is. Right, and you can do a mixed breed or mixed um, age population, so you could have anywhere from six-week fingerlings all the way up to eight-month-old pound-and-a-half tilapia, and they would obviously coexist very nicely. There wouldn't be any problems there. There is an age point when tilapia start breeding, and you don't necessarily want a situation because they can produce in a happy system where everything's running well. They could produce hundreds of thousands of eggs that if they all actually produce, (laughs) you may have a system suddenly full of hundreds of thousands of new little babies. Now, that feels more sustainable because, yeah, now you're creating your own fish stock, but very quickly that population is going to overrun the ability for the water quality to be maintained, and you're going to have to find homes for those, either other tanks that you have or give them to friends or start other systems or whatever the case may be. Now, I've read that some people do things like they have fairly large fish tanks and they'll keep a group of females and males of different species and breed their own hybrid stock to prevent that, and they just separate their males and females when they're not looking to breed. But you guys just source your fish from a from a hatchery or, or what have you? We do source from hatcheries, and we have a fish specialist that we work with quite extensively. His name is Bill Mancy with a... Um, Fort Collins uh, Fish Technologies, uh, Inc. is the uh, company name. And he is a really fantastic resource in providing information, a big proponent of aquaponics and aquaculture as a whole, um, more on a larger scale for sure. But the whole viewpoint is making sure the fish are as healthy uh, as possible, which is obviously the, you know, some people ask, is this cruel? I don't think it's cruel. Is it appropriate to have a large density of fish in a small space? Don't do it. I mean, do what feels most appropriate and natural. We don't need to jam these things full of as many fish. Completely now, I agree. absolutely agree. I agree with the idea that you probably don't want, you know, 400 tilapia coming to uh, plate size at the same time unless you have a really lot of friends that, that are interested in eating tilapia or you're going to have a big waste. And you can't keep those those fish in there indefinitely. There's just too much uh, fish solids that will collect over time that will overwhelm your system's ability to actually be able to use that um, nutrient water. We like the idea of having different types of fish species, but that often means different tanks because, for example, trout and tilapia are two temperatures. They like different levels of oxygen and different pH values. We can't have them in the same tank. It would seem to me, together. I was going to say, channel catfish and tilapia would seem like they would, and I, honestly, channel cats and trout, because channel cats can have handle the cool, and they yeah. like the warm. They're not, yeah, they're pretty good, and in fact, uh, it also depends on where they feed, and channel catfish uh, are going to feed more on the bottom, obviously, of the tank. We had this conversation with a restaurant not long ago, because they're getting a lot of their catfish out of um Mississippi, and one of the things they said is certain times of the year, obviously, when the water turns over, you get a very muddy-tasting catfish. And in a system like this, because you're not having that mud turnover in the springtime, you're never going to have that kind of swampy taste to your fish. Uh, We often put the fish in a completely fresh, clean supply of water for the last two or three days before we do a harvest just so that they can completely 
purge out of their system and they get a very fresh water source so that the meat tastes very clean. And I, I actually want to, if we have a moment, talk about antibiotics because a lot of people bring sure, that question ahead. up. Like, hey, antibiotics in fish and it's a big concern and you have it in fish farming and you have to do it too. We don't. Uh, we could have problems if we had outbreaks and fish sickness, but a lot of times that's resulting of the way they were transported, the way they were handled, um, or stresses that might be on the fish. Typically speaking, if we have a batch of fish that has been impacted in that transport or handling process, we try to make sure that those fish, before we ever put them into our systems, stand in a quarantine tank or hospital tank, is often called, for about a week to two weeks. So we're not just running out and throwing them right into the system. We want to make sure that they adjust really well to their new environment and that we can monitor their health before we put them into a completely new place. Uh, it also gives us a chance. Uh, fish like to be salted for all. Uh, it, it sounds weird, but there's a, a fish salt, not even for salt water fish, but it helps in the way that their body absorbs and utilizes and creates the buoyancy. It also helps repair any wounds that might have happened during transport or handling. And so those, if we were to put those salts right into the system, the plant roots would be uh, severely and negatively impacted. So we keep those out. If we ever had to use antibiotics in a fish stock, we would completely remove them out of the circulation of the system if necessary, they would either be killed if it's not appropriate to keep them alive, or we could provide them with some sort of medicine. If antibiotics might be the case, then that's what would be provided. But then they would be left out of that recirculating system until at least two weeks after the antibiotics had been introduced. Just like humans, we absorb and then um, flush out uh, or excrete those antibiotics out of our system. I mean, we don't have buildup of antibiotics in our system, even if we've recently taken them. About two weeks later, they're pretty much gone. And so unless you're dosing your fish, which unfortunately, just like with chickens, just like with cattle raised in these CAFOs or something like that, you have a scenario where they're proactively providing antibiotics because they have these inappropriate living environments for these animals we don't have to do that with these fish. We can take them out, treat them, and as the time is appropriate, return them back to the system. If they're never meant to be returned, then we don't have to worry about it. We don't even have to provide the antibiotics. Yeah, I completely agree. It's totally different than the guy that's raising chickens. And they raise these chickens that go to, to, to meat in 44 to 48 days, and they're on antibiotics constantly for that period. So the, the, the flesh is then saturated with antibiotic when you eat it. Um, it, it, what you're talking about is totally different, so that makes complete sense. And there's times when you could probably save a group of fish using antibiotics. And antibiotics aren't bad. It's the it's like a sword. It's or a gun. It's the use yeah. of thereof. If you think antibiotics are bad, stand between two people, look to the left and right, and without antibiotics, probably two of them, two of y'all, of the three, wouldn't be here today. Because somewhere in the past, somebody in your lineage has been saved. By antibiotics. There's what this big part of why there's more people today than there was, you know, 300 years ago. Um, sure. So I mean, they are. It's not that they're bad. It's that we need to think about how and when and and do we use them with discretion. So I, I think that's right. Why and that's the that point. Well, I, we are at like. It's, go ahead. I was just going to say it's just the fact that 
the fish farming industry gets so many of these bad raps for these sorts of like it's cruel or yes they use antibiotics or they feed you know just feed their fish like salmon right now they feed their fish so much or they're genetically modifying fish like salmon so that they grow so into these you know massive ridiculous size uh for for food purpose those things are not necessarily true across the board Again, completely agree, and we are kind of at, let's see, we're about an hour 15 now, so we kind of got over our normal length, but I mean, I, I want to throw it out to you. You got any final words, any final thoughts here for the audience? Um, I guess my final thoughts would be, you know, this is something the average person can do. It is an immense amount of fun. I will put out a word of caution, and that is um, you will be hooked. <laughs> it's like potato chips. Once you start diving into this, uh, you can't just have one. I mean, we, my husband and I, we had three-month-old twins and a four-year-old when we found out about aquaponics because we wanted to add fish to our chickens and goats and organic little farm home, farmstead that we had. And we said, why not put fish in the swimming pool And as a joke? And we then started researching it and found out about aquaponics. And ever since, this is all we can think about, all we can talk about every day, every night. And so you will be hooked, and in a good way. I think that's a really wonderful thing because I'd love to see this go further. My other final comment would be when you get hooked, please share it with others, and I think I've already mentioned this. It's about the community of bringing this to other people and really showing them the possibilities of their own food security and taking charge of their ability to create a high-quality food product for themselves and others. Well, very cool. Again, uh, Tanya, thank you for joining us today. And again, the folks, uh, again, folks, the uh, website there is www.coloradoaquaponics.com. Do check out Tanya's website today uh, and uh, check out all the great resources they have. And if you're in the area, do consider uh, uh, going to a cluster. I think it would be uh, a great idea for as many people as possible to could learn more about this. And I, I put aquaponics in the same category as uh, as gardening and permaculture it, it is a, it's what I call a gateway drug to prepping uh, because if you produce food eventually you're going to produce a surplus and then you're going to have to figure out what to do with it and then the next thing you know you've got a reserve food supply and all of a sudden you're a prepper and uh, I think that's a good thing and the more we can do to spread the, the community the culture uh, and, and the addiction to self-sufficiency and self-reliance the better so on that note today, this has been Jack Spirico along with Tanya Sawyer of Colorado Aquaponics helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is you.